0: Thank you. Good morning. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah together, so go ahead and turn to Second Chronicles. Um, we're going to start there. All right, Bible's open. I like that about Cornerstone. I don't want to be one of those churches where the preacher gets up to preach and people put their uh, arms on the back of the pew like, here we go, I want you to grab your Bibles and dig in. Um, that's exactly what we want uh, when this important, important time of every week happens for us. And that's when we gather. As a local church around the word of God and say, here's where we'll bank our trust. So, um, we are in there. We're going to look at the entire book of Isaiah together this morning. We're going to run up to second chronicles because the history there is important. Um, uh, and, and then, uh, we'll dive in through Isaiah as obviously an overview unless you want to be here for another three weeks. Um, Second Chronicles chapter seven setting is uh, Solomon is king. Remember, we said this is the height, the greatest moment in Israel's history is is when Solomon takes the throne and the temple is built. This is that moment. This is the height of the height of that of their time, um, and uh, and you're going to see. God lays out some fundamental promises that get carried out through the book of um, Isaiah. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord uh, and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and He said to him, so here's God talking to Solomon, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, Humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Jump down to verse 19. So that is the promise that there's hope. Verse 19. But, if you turn aside and you forsake My statutes and My commandments that I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll pluck you up from the land that I've given you. And this house, speaking now of the temple, this is what he says, I'm going to get you out of the land. That's one thing that's going to happen. And then this house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And at this house, speaking of the temple, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say... Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Why has the Lord done this to this land and to the temple? Let me pray for us. Father, as we dig in this morning to the amazing book that is the major prophet of Isaiah, God, I pray for help. I pray, Lord, that You would unite us by faith to hear Your revealed Word as given to us in the Scriptures. I thank You for this man's life. It was a very, very tough life. I thank You for the calling that You gave him and the strength that You gave him to live it out. And I thank You for the words that he so diligently recorded. Words from You. And so now, God, we gather as Westerners in a very modern facility, with all of our modern conveniences. And Lord, we are gathered around the words that this man from on the other side of the world, years and years and centuries ago, recorded that You gave for one simple reason. we believe it is Your Word to us today. And so God, our Father, Would you speak to your children? Let your word go forth, God. We ask these things to you, Father. We ask them through Jesus, who is our only access to you. He's our priest. He's our prophet. He's our king. And we ask now that you would accomplish these by your spirit. Amen. Well, um... The title of the uh, message today is God is Salvation. I didn't work hard on that. That is the translation of the word Isaiah from Hebrew to English. God is Salvation. So there you go. The uh, And it's an overview of the prophet Isaiah. Takeaway is this. God alone can offer the cosmic salvation we need and as such deserves our complete trust. God alone can offer the cosmic salvation that we need, and as such, He deserves our complete trust. As I spent a lot of the last few days reading all the way through the book of Isaiah, I was initially frustrated by the seemingly constant back and forth between judgment and hope. As, as a Western reader, uh, accustomed to an introduction, some type of conflict, some type of climax, and then resolution... You don't find anything like that in the book of Isaiah. I I felt like I was on a roller coaster. And, And the highs are really high in Isaiah, but the lows are really low. That is, when judgment comes in Isaiah, it comes with vengeance. But when restoration comes, it comes sweepingly. And so this morning, as we consider the book of Isaiah, as we consider 66 chapters in less than an hour, we're obviously not going to have time to dive into every chapter in depth. But there are at least four major themes that I'm hoping by the time we're done, you'll walk away with. The first two I've already mentioned, and that's judgment and hope. So let's begin with judgment. So I want you to see where I'm getting this from the text that a major theme in Isaiah is judgment. Remember, this is our job as pastors. Anybody who holds this sacred desk, they owe you the right to explain to you where they're getting a point from the Word of God. So here's my argument as to where it's coming from in the Word of God. So read with me why I think judgment is a major theme in Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 2 through 7. verse So at the very beginning of Isaiah... Here, by the way, we're going to have lots of text. They're going to be up here. So if you can't flip to it, just look up there. If you can't see that up there, it'll be on the website. All right. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children that I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. You know the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. It is overthrown by foreigners." Now, that's the opening. (laughs) That's the opening of Isaiah. It's an amazing opening. He diagnoses his people right out the gate as wicked and rebellious, thoroughly sick, and further, unable to heal themselves. And then, a few verses later, he promises impeding judgment. Look with me at verse 14. "Your Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates... They become a burden to me I'm weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. your hands are full of blood how the faithful city has become a whore she who has who, she who is full of justice therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts the mighty one of Israel, ah I will get relief from my enemies so now he's calling his own people. His enemies. Unreal. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself of my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt you away with dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. Unreal. This is the opening chapter. I'm laughing because, uh, I realize there's a lot of places you could go this morning and it would be a 15 minute three ways to have a better attitude for Monday. And instead we open up and you hear God calling His people a bunch of whores. Welcome to Cornerstone, glad you're here. All right. Wow. God is bringing the judgment. He's promising judgment. He's saying He's going to destroy them. It's the foundation, it's found all the way throughout the book. A couple more. Chapter 2, verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Flip all the way to chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with My people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken His Word. Now, the first 39 chapters focus on Samaria, the northern kingdom, that is Israel, and, and they will eventually be knocked out by the Assyrian army. And then and the latter chapters from, from 40 on is going to focus on Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the, the, the nation of uh, Jerusalem, of Judah, and, and they're going to be wiped out later by the Babylonians. And yet, interestingly, The Assyrians and the Babylonians, they get thrown into the judgment as well in Isaiah. It's a free-for-all. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Verse 3. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. And your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. It continues all the way throughout the book, towards the final chapters of the book, verse, or chapter 30, or 65. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Final chapter of the book. Chapter 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger and fury, and His rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by His sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Okay, so we march through quickly the book of Isaiah, and you're starting to feel like, is Isaiah nothing but a rage fest, right? Well, not exactly. While it is complete with some judgment, it's also ripe with hope. So one of the themes is judgment, and another theme is Hope. Let's march back through together. Go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And I will restore your judges, as at the first and your counselors is at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. This continues, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. In the day that the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. To the mighty God. Chapter 25. Therefore, this is verse 3 and 4. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. We're we're part of that. We're part of the cities of ruthless nations who are now fearing God. We're part of the promise there. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Chapter 35, verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Chapter 55, verse 10. and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Chapter 65. Probably one of the most hopeful passages in all of the Scriptures. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The wolf and the lamb, they're going to graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So, is Isaiah just an emotional basket case? I mean, how do you move so seamlessly between such bad news and such good news? Well, first of all, remember, Isaiah is not the chief author. God is. Okay? So we know it's not an issue of being an emotional basket case. So how can God move so seamlessly between bad news and good news? Well, let me submit to you that that's the story of Isaiah. God does not move seamlessly between judgment and hope. In fact, the main theme of Isaiah is the seam between judgment and hope. Finding the scene, connecting judgment and hope. I had us begin by reading 2 Chronicles to be reminded of the moment when the temple was being inaugurated. This glorifying moment in the, in the nation of Israel. There God had laid out His promise that if there was going to be obedience, there would be blessing and hope. But if there would be disobedience, there would be judgment and dismay. But, what we saw was there was disobedience. So what happens? Well, recall, the temple represents the presence of God. And so when God draws near, so you got the temple, when God draws near, there will be judgment or there will be hope, but there will be one of them. It is critical we understand the biblical seam connecting judgment and hope. How are those two sewn together? Well, before we look at how it's done biblically, let me show you some ways it's done unbiblically. First, you can unbiblically try to seam these together by just denying their existence altogether or at least denying judgment altogether. This is what liberal theology does. This is what happens in mainstream Christianity. They read passages in Isaiah and across the whole of scriptures that say things like, I'm going to knock you out and they just fully deny it altogether or at least say it doesn't accurately represent God. Ironically, not only does this lead to a false hope, because it does lead to a false hope, but it actually leads to a diluted hope. Because they also can't take literally the amazing promises of hope that the passages on hope bring. So they need no seam between judgment and hope because they deny the former and they dilute the latter. So one option is liberalism. Deny judgment altogether. A second alternative to try to bring together judgment and hope might be seen in many fundamentalist movements. Here biblical hope, I'm sorry, biblical judgment appears to be fully embraced. But the bridge between God's judgment and hope, it's simply not strong enough. What what typically happens there is there's an emphasis on the need for atonement for past sins. But then once our past sins are atoned for, we can kind of get ourselves going by following all the perfect rules that are laid out. All the perfect laws that are laid out. If we keep those things, if we wear our clothes this way and do things this way and avoid the culture, then we can make it on our own. But realize Isaiah chapter 1 dismantles that whole approach altogether. Because he portrays man is not just lightly sick in need of a booster shot, Instead, he calls them gravely ill, affecting the entire whole, the whole heart, and the whole mind. So fundamentalism doesn't have a strong enough seam to hold together judgment and hope. Another alternative might be characterized by personal prosperity teachings or personal prosperity gospel, which comprises about at least 80% of TV preachers. While they may give you Second Chronicle 7, I promise you they're not going to give you Isaiah. <laughs> they talk of judgment in terms of excessive debt, poor health, and bad moods. And then they talk of hope in terms of a full bank account, a positive attitude, and strong health. And coincidentally, the scene between hope and judgment is their latest book. Still, another alternative... A more popular alternative, quite honestly, in some Baptist churches in the United States is what I might call patriotic prosperity teaching. This is the line of argument, something on the lines of let's take America back. So 2 Chronicles 7 is often quoted here. And, and the way it is interpreted as it's spoken of a current geopolitical nation and the recipients to Second Chronicles 7 are the citizens of that nation who need to repent so that God will continue to bless that nation. So for example, if we as Americans repent, return to our once righteous ways, then God will ensure our long-term security and prosperity. But let me submit to you, that's actually not much different at all than personal prosperity teaching. The prosperity is just not on a single person, but on an entire nation. It's a nation scale prosperity gospel. First of all, 2 Chronicles 7 was never, sorry, 2 Chronicles 7 was spoken to the covenant people of God. And I'm sorry, but you've got some major problems if you want to identify every citizen of America as a citizen to the kingdom of God. That's a major problem. Another major problem with this theory is it. when you tout the idea of let's take America back, I want to ask, okay, but where do you want us to go back to? Where is it we should go back to? Are we going to return to where it was during the formation of our nation? Maybe so. You often hear, uh, America was founded as a Christian nation. Well, folks, there's no doubt that our founders believed in God. No doubt whatsoever. But most of them showed no evidence of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. We've been looking at this together as our church history class on Sunday evenings. Uh, take just the first three presidents of the United States. George Washington showed not a shred of evidence that he had a genuine trust in Jesus Christ as presented in Scripture. By the way, I think he's an incredible leader. Absolutely loved the man. John Adams, our second president, he explicitly denied the Incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity. Explicitly denied it. Our third president, the good Virginian Thomas Jefferson, who I love every. Uh, July 4th, I pull out the Declaration of Independence and am blown away that a man could write that in less than two weeks' time. But what about Thomas Jefferson? He literally cut the resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth, literally took scissors to his Bible and cut it out because he thought it was nonsense that anybody could believe it. I personally don't want to take us back to that. Well, maybe you want to take us back to somewhere, say, mid-19th century. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in reliving the Civil War. Um, I also have to tell you, this is a little bit uh, self-centered here, but the Native American in me isn't real excited about the 1850s and the Trail of Tears. Okay, well, what about the beginning of the 20th century? Maybe we should go there. Uh, okay, but I think the women among us are not going to appreciate that because they can't even vote at that time. Well, what about mid-20th century? Maybe that was high times for where we should take America back to. Well, maybe it was for white middle class Christians, but I'm thinking our black brothers and sisters aren't going to appreciate that since they were relegated to use different bathrooms and different water fountains. I'm thinking that's not the best place to take us back to. Now, don't hear me wrong. Please don't. America is an amazing country. I even wore my red, white, and blue tie to to make sure you knew I believed it. It is. It's unparalleled in modern history. And every citizen should be grateful to God to be counted among it. We owe an amazing debt debt of gratitude to every man and woman who gave their life that this nation is a reality. But even our greatest moment, let it be in the past, Or let it be in the future, it pales in comparison to the hope promised in the kingdom of God as represented in Isaiah. The prosperity, the patriotic prosperity gospel speaks of light judgment. We should stop being so immoral and offers light hope. We can return to some nostalgic period in our nation's history. But notice, it cannot offer the hope representing the cosmic hope of Isaiah. And the truth be told, it no way close offers the judgment offered in Isaiah. So what is the biblical scene? What is it? Let's hunt for it together through Isaiah. You're going to see it all the way throughout. Back to chapter 1 together. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Okay, so we got the scene kind of starting here. There will be redemption by way of justice, and those redeemed will be characterized by repentance and righteousness. Interesting. Okay, stay with me. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Wow. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Not just a priest, everyone. Verse 4, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So we have a branch of the Lord who cleanses the people, not in spite of judgment, but through judgment. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So now we got a virgin who's going to give birth to a son, and his name will mean God with us. Now remember, this is Isaiah. He's writing at least 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth is ever born. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given.
1: And the government
0: shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of the government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this child is going to be God. He's going to reign on the throne of David. And His kingdom will have no end. And we are told that this child who is God is also a servant. Of God. Follow with me. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. So the servant who is going to bring forth justice is going to do this with meekness. How? How? Chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. 800 years before Jesus is on the scene, this is recorded. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. So this is the same one who's going to bring justice and peace and righteousness and everything that everybody wants. As one from whom men hide their faces and despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs, and He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The seam takes shape. We see, arise out of the text of Isaiah, the person of Jesus Christ. The seam between judgment and hope is atonement. The seam between judgment and hope is atonement. Recall in Second Chronicles 7, God promised that if the people rebelled, He would take the temple and cast it out of His sight. And everyone who passed by would say what? Why has the Lord forsaken it? This was fulfilled with the judgment that was brought when the Babylonians took the temple in 586 and sacked it. That's why we record it. We all think that like 586, the date that the Babylonians did it, like they all marched in on January 1st of that year and marched out, and that's why it's 586. We pick 586 for one reason, because it happens over decades. 586 is when the temple fell. That's what mattered. It was ultimately... Second Chronicles chapter 7, according to what Isaiah is arguing, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Why was the temple important? Because it represented the presence of God. It represented God with His people. And who is Jesus according to Isaiah? He is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And what does Jesus say about the temple in His day? Do you remember? They are kind of excited about the temple. And he says, what about the temple? He says, I will destroy this, speaking of the temple, and I'm going to raise it, the temple, up when? Three days. The only thing that got raised in three days was Jesus. Jesus is identifying Himself with the temple. So the scene between judgment and hope is the atonement brought by Jesus. He represents the promised judgment as He hangs on the tree bearing the weight of our sin and cries out, My God, my God, why have You finished it? Forsaken me. Only an event is horrific and evil and terrifying as represented on the cross of Calvary, could represent the cosmic judgment we read about in Isaiah. Christ bore the judgment. And when He hung on the tree, we hung on the tree. And when He said to die, it is finished, and we say, it is finished... Likewise, when he walked out of that tomb, so we walked out of that tomb. When, when he steps out of the tomb, Jesus Christ announces the cosmic hope of Isaiah. He is the cosmic Hope of Isaiah. There's coming a day when we will all live under the perfect King Jesus and you will enjoy the treasures of His kingdom. Your heart right now aches for it. I promise you it aches for it. You may not know it, but it aches for it. It wants to live in the kingdom where Jesus rules. And there's coming a day when we will enjoy the fruit of His perfect leadership and feast on His everlasting goodness. Let us never settle for too light of a seam that connects judgment and hope. The seam that connects judgment and hope is the gospel itself and it is our life. And so what do you do with that? How do you walk away with that? Well, if you're looking for 10 steps to a better Monday from Isaiah, um, I'm sorry. Uh, But I told you there are four themes. We've looked at three. We've looked at judgment, hope, and atonement. There's one other that I find very helpful. It's not going to tell you how to make every decision next week. It's not going to tell you to go send a card to somebody, though it might. It is going to tell you how you live as a citizen in this type of reality. Okay. The final one is the theme of trust. Trust. This is how the people and the citizens citizens of this kingdom live. We trust. We trust. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Okay, if you're like, I have no clue what's going on right here. we got something about a vineyard and some dude. I have no idea. Alright, big picture. Here's where we go. This guy planted a vineyard and he did everything that could be done to make sure it gave a lot of good flowing wine. That's that's what's going on here. In other words, any dummy could have brought forth wine from this vineyard. Anybody. Even a moron when it comes to gardening like me should be able to walk in there and be producing some sweet wine. As a Baptist we'll just call it grape juice early. But anyway, That's what the hope was, right? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now all inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. God is saying, you judge between me and my people. What more was there to do for my vineyard? In other words, how hard was it that I've not done when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Translation, all my people had to do was trust me. That's it. That's all they had to do. Keep going. In the, uh, I go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 22. In the days of Hezekiah, which uh, Pastor or, uh, Mark, Brother Mark preached on last time, he focused on uh, Hezekiah and they made a lot of military fortresses to get ready for the, the attack of the Assyrians. And one of the things is they built a really sweet water reservoir. Uh, I'm told that there is still interest in how they built this architecturally today because it was so amazing. Listen how God is, reacts to this amazing water reservoir they built. Isaiah 22.11 You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to Him who did it or see Him who planned it long ago? (laughs) This floors me. So God says, Hooray! Nice water reservoir. I did it. I planned it. Translate that to your life. What, What are you most proud of? I mean, seriously. Somebody looks over your life and you say, I mean, I want you to check this out. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your career. Maybe you got a sweet old car you've been keeping up. I've got a sweet old car, but I don't think it would be my greatest pride and joy. Asher would disagree. Maybe it's your children. You say, oh, just look how they've turned out. Oh, they're great. I don't know. What is it? Here's what God says about that. I did that. I planned that. If it's good, and it's in your life, you didn't do it. God did it. And His point is, and you don't even look to Me? says, so not only that you don't recognize I did it, you take credit for it, and then when you need help, you don't even look to the One who did it. Trust. You did not trust Me. Similarly, similarly, he chastises them for going down to pagan Egypt instead of trusting in him who saved them from the bondage of Egypt. Look at Isaiah 31-1. Now, what was happening is the people were running down to Egypt because they were scared of the Assyrians. Uh, and the Assyrians' ruler's name was Tiglath-Pileser. By this has nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, it does have to do with it, but I gotta be honest with you. If a guy named Tiglath-Pileser was on his way my way, I would run. His name's Tiglath-Pileser. I mean, I actually thought this week as I was thinking on his name, I might owe my son an apology. We passed up on Tiglath-Pileser for his name. I mean, he would have to go down with a pagan Assyrian emperor, but still, it's Tiglath-Pileser. Anyway, I'll have to apologize. I mean, you imagine as a running back, Tiglath-Pileser has the ball. That's impressive. That's impressive. Or if you're in a boardroom and the guy walks in, he's getting ready to throw down a financial argument. They're like, now Mr. Tiglath-Pileser would like to talk. Come on, I don't know. Then you'd have the initials TP. That would help the Native Americans. Okay, anyway, all right, we need to move forward. All right. I have digressed. This is why I... Stay manuscripts. Stay manuscripts. Stay manuscript. All right, Isaiah 31, one. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You would think this guy, they're getting good praise. Like if you were giving them military counsel, like, yeah, now you trust in some horsemen, uh, because there's lots of them, and you trust in some chariots because they're very strong. That, That makes sense. And then God turns it and says, What are you doing? I'm God. Folks, as those who believe in the cosmic judgment offered up on the cross of Jesus Christ and in the, in the cosmic hope given to us in the person of Christ, we must give Him and Him alone all of our trust. He deserves it, He deserves your trust. That's what He deserves. He deserves you banking on Him. And in particular, on His Word. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. The demeanor or the posture of God's people is a demeanor of trust. We trust that all the big things He promises, they're all true. And in so doing, we find peace. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting God rock. Isaiah 41 verse 9 I have chosen you and not cast you off. Verse 10. Fear not. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The book of Isaiah is the historic story of God's people judged by God for failing to trust in the promises of His protection and ultimately His promise of hope. But it's also the story of every man and every woman, every person is called to trust in God and in God alone. Where are you? When you look at your life, when you see the decisions that you're making, honestly, do you trust Him? And one of the biggest indicators of this is not what, it's the when. Say again, it's not the what, it's the when. The reason the prosperity gospel gets so much play, the reason you can get a huge church and, I guess if you wanted, find yourself on television... It's because all you do is you make promises that people see and feel today and tomorrow. Yeah, they're light promises, but there's something they can feel today and tomorrow. Do you realize your biggest temptation is because of time? It's not that you don't trust God about big things. You just want something, something now. And what is it in your life that you know good and well God is saying... Not yet. Not yet. It's coming. You're going to be fulfilled. But not yet. Will you trust Him that one day you will find yourself in His kingdom and you will enjoy every promise of Scripture? One day, if we're in the new kingdom that's coming and somebody can play the reels of TV preachers today, not only will they be judged, quite honestly, for false gospel, but they'll be laughed out of heaven for promising way, way too little. The the problem is not that they promise too much. The The problem is they do not promise enough. God has so much more. For His people. And so what's our demeanor? What's our posture? We trust. We hold on. And we trust.